Hey, Parker. Hey, Carrie. It, it's good to talk to you in these days that are so full of uncertainty and possibility. And I'm really glad that we're bringing in an amazing guest today, Prita Banzal. Absolutely. We're going to learn a lot about Prita's very important story, important in this election month for a lot of us who are thinking about governance and social change in the United States of America. We'll get to her in a moment, but in the meantime, welcome to The Growing Edge. I'm Carrie Newcomer. And I'm Parker Palmer. To the words and between us, and to us and how we live between the words. So Carrie, as you know, our friend Prita Bansal has a really remarkable life story. And on this podcast, we have the privilege of not only learning about it, but learning from it. Her parents emigrated to the U.S. from India, and she was raised in Lincoln, Nebraska. She went on to Harvard University and Harvard Law School, where she was a classmate of Barack Obama, who later invited her to serve in his White House. One of the reasons we treasure Prita as a friend and leader is her lifelong passion for service. After many years of working near the top of institutional power in places like Washington, D.C. and New York City, she returned to her hometown in the American heartland, which is also, she says, the heart of her heart. And there she's been pioneering a new ground-level approach to community building under the banner, Change Yourself, Change the World. In other words, when Carrie and I met you, Prita, several years ago, we knew we had met a soul sister. Mm. At this moment in American history, Prita's voice is one of many that people need to hear. Welcome, welcome, our dear friend, to The Growing Edge. Oh, thank you so much. I can't imagine two people that I feel safer in conversation with. Thank you. We're delighted. Oh, we are. And, and Prita, your history and what you are doing now is so inspiring. And, um, and you've lived really your entire life leaning into public service and service of, of a wide variety of, of avenues. So, so let's just start out with, you know, what, what drew you to public service and, and what's, what's, you know, beneath all that passion? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, I think, you know, growing up as an immigrant, uh, my parents were early immigrants to America for the Indian American migration, which came really after the 65 Immigration Act. Um, I mean, I definitely grew up with this amazing, you know, love for the the dream of America, the sense of America, the can-do sensibility that, that America offered. Um, and also, you know, a little bit of the scarcity mindset that sometimes besets immigrants, um, mm -hmm. the sense that we have to, you know, make it, do it. Uh, and my parents grew up in India kind of pre-independence. So they had a bit of the colonized mindset, I would say, of British India, um, ad admiring in some sense, you know, the, the Western ways. Um, and so, you know, they settled in the Midwest where we were an extreme minority. I mean, I grew up in Kansas and Nebraska and people, you know, 
you know, I think I, I, I say it somewhat jokingly, but not entirely. I think I was the only non-blonde in my high school of about 2,000 <laughs> people. I mean, it's very Germanic Scandinavian stock, at least back then. It's obviously changed. But in the 60s and 70s, it was very, um, you know, very non-diverse, I would say. So I grew up kind of with a sense of being an extreme minority, um, but bottled up those feelings of difference. Um, there wasn't really a safe space to explore them. And so, you know, you, when you grow up in an environment where you basically assimilate or die, you assimilate. And I think I, you know, I think I was probably 25 before I realized I wasn't a blonde girl um, and then started, started opening up the black box of, you know, the, the hidden feelings and just exploring the strength and power that came from them. What a complex force field, Prita. My goodness. I mean, how did you find your way through that? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm not saying I did it particularly well, necessarily. You just, you know, we all just do what we can. Um, but, you know, I had amazing, you know, family, community support. Um, you know, just, I think, I think just being smart in traditional ways, and I say that very traditionally, um, like kind of a certain sense of, um, you know, yeah, just a certain form of intelligence that was valued in school, mm -hmm. um, I think got me pretty far. And I kept being rewarded for that. Um, and I think in some ways, it was, a, it was obviously a source of incredible opportunity for me. But it was also in some ways, a bit of a crutch, because it made it easy to keep going down a certain groove, a certain line to be rewarded in certain ways and to be valued in certain ways and to continue allowing, you know, the, the black box the where I say I kind of, I buried my heart in some ways. It allowed that to continue to remain blocked in some sense. Mm -hmm. Well, it, you found your way through to Harvard college and to Harvard law school and you then found your way on through a whole series of amazing posts and and uh, responsibilities that we don't really have time to enumerate here. Um, but you ended up uh, pretty quickly in Barack Obama's White House uh, around 2008, when yeah. the financial structure of the entire planet was collapsing. And uh, as I recall, you were appointed to a very high post, maybe next to the top in the Department of, uh, what was it, Budget? Uh, yeah, Office of Management and Budget. Office of Management and Budget, which we're hearing a lot about these days in one way or another. Um, I know, as long as I've known you, Prita, you haven't told war stories about D.C., and I have the strong impression that that's not your favorite thing to talk about, even though you... I know had great colleagues there and were, had an opportunity to do wonderful work, but I'm sure that our listeners would would love to hear something about your experience at that high level of government and public life, which was then your manifestation of this drive to public service, and then the journey that took you toward sensing strongly the limits of that kind of top-down model of social change and kind of ordering a society from that high perch. So would you be willing to kind of start with 08 and go on a bit from there? Sure. I, th I think I have to go back just a tiny bit before that, actually. Um, so, you know, coming out of 
you know, Harvard Law School and being valued and trained to think very analytically. I mean, I think I think I grew up like so many of pe people in my generation really believing in the power of reason to break down, debate and solve massive problems. Um, it was kind of an overwhelming belief in the power of the mind, uh, a faith that we can think our way through our brain power, through any complex social problem. Um, and and with that, I had some extraordinary opportunities. So I in back in 2000, uh, sorry, 1999, I was, you know, appointed solicitor general of the state of New York, which, um, you know, it has, is a big role in the attorney general's office of New York and, you know, played a role in totally revamping that prosecutorial office, um, you know, argued in the U.S. Supreme Court. So really was very legal in my orientation in terms of law, prosecutorial power, and kind of started seeing over time. And, and so much credit and so much appreciation for people who, who do that and kind of, you know, set the boundaries for what's acceptable in our society. But increasingly started feeling that, you know, when you have a hammer in your hand, every social problem becomes a nail. Um, and sometimes the use of prosecutorial power or force, um, while it certainly, you know, gets bad guys out of the way, it doesn't necessarily deal with the underlying situation. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, you know, the kind of iceberg model, you know, you're dealing with the surface, but there's like a deep undercurrent mm -hmm. underneath that. So I, so, so moving from, I started getting really intrigued by, you know, maybe moving away from the sense of social sanction, which I think is law and more into social persuasion, hmm. um, which I thought was more politics. And so I got very excited about, um, especially when Barack Obama started running for president, like so many people in, in you know, 2007, 2008 was swept up. Um, he, he actually was not a direct classmate, but he was around the same time I was at Harvard Law School and we had a lot of common friends. Um, got very wrapped up in Obama 08, the campaign, the, the movement that it was, and it was very much a movement. I mean, it was the first modern political campaign that relied largely on, you know, not the, the fat cat donors, but, you know, p uh, ordinary people giving five or $10 rather than, you know, people giving the maximum. So it was very much, you know, so I, I got very wrapped up in that sense of the movement. And I think, and it was a really exciting time. Um, and then when the financial crisis hit in 2008, which was the summer of 2008, it was before he was elected, um, got, uh, I played a, a pretty significant role full time in the transition, the Obama-Biden transition mm -hmm. of 08. So planning for governance. Um, and that was kind of moving from you know, politics and social persuasion, again, back to governance and how do you deal with that? Um, and, you know, amazing time. I mean, this was a, this was an extraordinary administration. I mean, Barack Obama is an extraordinary human being. Um, his ability to articulate, his ability to conceive, his ability to, um, I mean, just, you know, it's a, it's a rare combination of heart and, and mind that we have in a leader. And I don't know, frankly, that we'll see that again in my lifetime, that kind of a person at the apex of American politics. Um, but I think what started hitting me after a while of being there was that it, it wasn't about the person um, in office, that there were limits to that old toolkit of top-down mm -hmm. social change. And while Obama 08 had been so exciting, we had really 
you know, given people a sense of agency, excited people about the power of their individual voice, their vote, their small dollars, for example, to elect people. Once someone is in office, it was almost like, it was almost like job done, you know, <laughs> when mm -hmm. in fact that was just the beginning. And um, yeah, so I just, I think, I think being there, it was extraordinary, but I also started seeing the limits of, of a certain model of social change. Um, there, there's a lot of reasons for that, but um, you know, and I think some of that has to do with scale. Um, when you're dealing, when you're, when you're operating, I mean, you know, so we were working on obviously healthcare reform, um, working on Wall Street reform, the Dodd-Frank Act, there was a lot of big stuff happening. And I happened to be in the place, the Office of Management and Budget. It's kind of, it's interesting. People don't really know it. It's an office within the executive office of the president within the White House complex. And it is, um, I, I often call it the engine room of the federal government. Um, it's where the real change happens in some mm -hmm. sense. So when a president comes into power, we often think, oh, you know, everything's going to change now. But the federal government is a massive bureaucracy and a massive institution. So how do you turn around the ship of state? Um, it's not something that somebody's new and immediately, you know, policies happen. There, but there's a few key levers that a leader has to shift things. Many of those levers are run by the Office of Management and Budget. So, for example, one is obviously the budget. Um, that is one of the huge levers that a president has. So the whole budget process goes through there. Mm -hmm. A second lever is just um, legislation and working with Congress. Obviously, the, the president can't make that happen, but he has to work with Congress. So the various positions that either the president or the various cabinet heads take on legislation all have to be vetted and coordinated through the, the Office of Management and Budget. The third is just regulation. So short of legislation the massive regulations that the federal government does, whether they're environmental or anything else, all of that is run out of the Office of Management and Budget. So the whole regu regulatory arm, every federal re uh, regulation has to be approved, the modification or the enactment has to be go through OMB. Mm -hmm. And then the, the fourth is um, president executive orders. Um, so what the president can do just purely by executive power, and that goes through OMB. Um, mm -hmm. And then the fifth power a president has to shift the ship of state is really the management and kind of um, procurement and all of the ways in which the federal government is a, is a purchaser or consumer. And all of that goes through OMB. You know, I, I think uh, I've heard you use the metaphor before, but it's like an onion, that there's just layers and layers. And, and you've spoken about that, that, that government is, is so multi-layered. And, um, and what you're describing is, um, you know, it's not just one person coming in and doing this, but that, that there's all these processes and, and that particular um, department you are in um, was really very central. Yeah, it is. It's like I said, it's the engine room. It's the, the yeah. it's where things all flow through. They have to go through that. But it's interesting because you hear like President Trump come in and he talks about the deep state. Um, you know, so every president at some level feels like, uh, I think, would probably feel like there's, while everybody thinks everything will change when a president comes into power, the truth is the federal government operates uh, as it does. And there, it, there and there's a reason it's not that easy to change things. Um, we've set up, I mean, I, my background is as a constitutional lawyer. We set up a system of government that is meant to block uh, power. Uh, 
it was meant to control the excesses of power. And so whether you talk about the three branches of government, you talk about all the checks and balances within each branch, it's not set up so that things can shift easily. Right, right, right. It is like turning a big ship and you have to tilt the rudder a bit like miles ahead of where you want to turn if you want to get anywhere. I know that Carrie wants to get, and I too want to get more deeply into what you're doing now, but I want to just probe for a moment one point you made that Carrie just brought back to mind. Um, and that is that this notion that when Obama got elected, everybody who'd been in the movement um, kind of felt, if I heard you right, kind of felt, um, okay, our job is done now, Barack run the country the way we want it run. Is that a fair reading of what you, you were saying, that kind of that citizen initiative and and uh, pressure and guidance kind of fell away? Well, I wouldn't say, of course, it didn't completely fall away. But I think that the kind of energy we saw to get him into power, um, I think for various reasons, it was kind of like, you know, let's step back now and see what can be harnessed. And I think, I think especially in the second term of Obama, there was an attempt to kind of revitalize the movement sense of things. But um, I, I think it did, it did kind of take a break. And I mean, we see, we see the consequences of that. We see that in the 2016 election, it wasn't just the presidency that was lost. It was a lot, it went all the way down balance. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It went to states. I mean, there was a sense of just the, the movement and the organization wasn't there. Yeah, the people way. throwing up their hands as citizens and saying, nothing I can do, whatever. So eternal vigilance is not only uh, incumbent upon the occupants of high office, it's also incumbent upon us as citizens, right? To maintain eternal vigilance in the pursuit of life, liberty, and, and well-being for all. Yeah, absolutely. And and something that, you know that that uh, I find really interesting. I'm maybe jumping ahead a little, but this this idea of your personal movement from working um, with the external like wheels of power and of service, and then um, this movement to this idea of the inner work of democracy, and. Uh, the power of the grassroots and the the movement that that you experienced and that are re-experiencing but in another way now so um so i guess that kind of goes along I, I might have jumped ahead a little bit but um you know how did that happen and, and where where are you at with that now i mean you know you went from feeling the limits of that to to sensing something that had a wide potential. Yeah, so there's probably um, a number of pieces of that. I mean, at the, you know, there's like a, there's a deep, there's a, there's an intellectual theory of power one can create around a new form of social movement. And then there's like a deeper knowing the heart, yeah. what the mm -hmm. heart knows. And I think for me, it really came from um, around 2012, I did my first meditation retreat. Um, after It was actually right after I left the first term of the White House. And um, it, like, you know, literally on like the eighth or ninth day of a 10 day retreat, like, you know, the earth cracked open underneath me. And I had a mm. glimpse of something so much deeper in terms of, um, 
you know, I guess it was just the iceberg, as you say, you know, you kind of, I'd been working on social change and issues that I cared about from the top, you know, thinking, oh, if I just get closer and closer to, you know, if I keep scaling the heights of power or something or get closer and closer, there will be something that can unlock and can, you know, can make a change in. And then I think for the first time I had a glimpse of my own personal iceberg and I had a tool for finally going deep. And um, yeah, so that was kind of a deep knowing in the heart. And then I just started realizing that, uh, you know, I think, I think it was Martin Luther King who talked about, who said that, um, you know, Gandhi was the first person who kind of unlocked this, um, the sense of the power of love as yeah. a, as a public, as, as a public narrative, not just as private love, but as something that can heal the world. And I think I just had a sense of, like I talked about going from social sanction for, of law to social persuasion of politics. I think I started seeing just the deeper, deeper, deeper power, which is the power of love. And it sounds, you know, kind of sweet and hokey. Isn't that nice that Prita had this nice awakening and this nice story? But I think I too started seeing over time, not right away, but started seeing this as just a powerful social force that, you know, if we could create the architecture and the structure in the way that the constitution created a structure for a certain type of society, if we could create a social architecture for a movement of love, you know, we could, we could potentially unlock that. So that's kind of what started moving me in a different direction. And then I obviously came into contact. When, when things start happening, the universe puts the right people in front of you. Um, yes. and, mm -hmm. and, yeah. And then I started coming into contact with people who shared that vision and had were much deeper on that vision than I was um, and were able to both be my teachers and were people with, with whom I could co-create. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, let's dive into that a little more. When you uh, talked with Carrie and me maybe a week ago as we were preparing for this podcast, you said something that I've been thinking about ever since. And incidentally, when when love is the answer comes out of your mouth, it doesn't sound sweet and hokey to me at all. It, it sounds like deeply grounded, not only in the earth yeah. of Lincoln, Nebraska, but in personal experience in the highest places of power. So I pay attention to things like that. But you said the founders structured our government to control vice. We need an, a structure that nourishes virtue. I, I think I got that roughly right. Can you say more about that? Because I think that's where you were just going with with uh, the structures that support love. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think so often, you know, we hear a lot of t a lot of people these days, I think, uh, especially, you know, very powerful, moral and social figures talking about, you know, needing a revolution of love. So that's, that's not, that's something that a lot of people are talking about. And it's something I'm certainly very taken by. But I think, I, I think what I'm kind of increasingly taken by is this notion of, you know, not, how do I say this, like not having a thousand kilowatt power um, of charisma coming at you talking about how powerful this is, which, which is wonderful, and you feel great, and it's inspiring but then you kind of go home and feel that you're not that thousand watts and then, and then it kind of dims. So it's not like the thousand watt charisma about love, but how do you, how do you light up 
the one watt in a thousand people um, so that it's much more distributed. How do you create an architecture or a system where people are really just really start to come alive in small ways? How do you create a resilient network where people are tapped into their deepest sense? And I think, you know, that, I mean, to be fair, that I, I'm, yeah, so that's kind of what's motivating me. I'm not sure that's the work of the state, frankly. So I don't see this as something happening in the public realm, the political realm, let me put it that way, or necessarily in the governance realm. I mean, I think the work of the state is to balance the excesses of power. It's to create the outer container by which this inner work can happen. But, so, the, public, but the public realm, the, the infrastructure of democracy, the company of strangers, uh, the one that de Tocqueville talked about as yeah. essential to the future of democracy, that's where it might happen, right? And as I understand it, that's what you're working on these days in Lincoln. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's really in that in the it, what de Tocqueville talked about as voluntary associations. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. yeah, and it's in that world. But it's interesting because in this day and age, voluntary associations means nonprofit, which is not the same. Um, you know, the nonprofit world is very different from the voluntary world. So anyway, right. that's a, it's a third sector, isn't it? Or really a fourth sector, private, public, political and and nonprofit. <laughs> yeah. And voluntary. Yeah. And voluntary. Yeah. And so voluntary. Like, yeah. To me, voluntary is like really lighting up like the intrinsic motivations of people, like what the, what they would do um, just because they want to do it. So. I mean, I, you know, when you think of that Howard Thurman quote, you know, don't ask yourself what the world needs, ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that because the world, what the world needs is people who come alive. So I don't know that, I, I guess I'm, I'm a little less enamored by the nonprofit sector, uh, which is I think the way in which in most communities people think of, um, you know, the association life now. I'm much more enamored by this idea of pure voluntary intrinsically motivated service. Mm. And there's something so powerful and also um, I, I think it was really good for you to say, well, it sound for some people, it'll, it'll sound a little um, sweet or, you know, when you start talking about love as a dynamic force that uh, creating this structure, as you were talking about, that that um, supports virtue, that supports voluntary uh, service of all kinds that supports the inner work of democracy. Um, that's really powerful stuff for me. And, and, um, you know, this idea that things don't change at the top until there's this swell at the bottom. And I loved what you had to say about, um, the charismatic kind of moment or, or speaker and going back home and saying, well, what does my one voice mean? You know, what is the, the one watt of light I've got if I give it all, you know, and and creating a, a, a structure so that we all can put in our wattage. You know, I, I just I just find that to be a really powerful idea and so needed right now. I mean, I just I think it's easy, particularly now in COVID, COVID times, when our we're being limited by just how far we can go physically, you know, and what we can do in certain kinds of um, gathering spaces and things like that. Um, when there's a lot of of messaging that our one voice doesn't matter, 
And, and what you're saying is something very different. It's not that it's the one voice. It's the, it's, it's all of our one voices, you know, doing that work that not just matters, it's everything. You know, yeah. I, I'm yeah. so, I'm, I just think that's an incredible idea and movement and, um, and, and you work now with a group called Service Space. I mean, that's part of the many things you're doing right now. Um, uh, but Service Space, that's very much the model, um, as I understand it. Maybe you could talk a little bit about Service Space and what, you know, how that's exciting, what you're doing right now. Yeah, both internationally and locally, I think, if I understand it right. Yeah, so service space is really kind of this extraordinary experiment that um, that's the only way I would describe it. It's, you know, really founded upon building, uh, you know, this social architecture for love. How do you amplify um, small, small acts of love? So, so often when we think of social movements and charismatic or, or movements. There's almost been no movement that I, I know of that's been lasting, no social movement, where it wasn't founded on this deep soul force. Like whether you're talking about the civil rights movement, King, whether you're talking about Gandhi, whatever, it's just, it's just founded on this deep reservoir of soul force. And um, what service space is really trying to do is harness that deep work, the, the work, the work of inner transformation, the work of, mm -hmm. of inner change that underlies the outer change. And sometimes we're so eager for the outer work the you know, when's the revolution happening? Once the social, once <laughs> this happening, but it's, it's building up that reservoir. I mean, one of the things I like to remind people, you know, like if you watch the movie Gandhi, they go straight from his time in South Africa to coming back to India and starting the salt march, which was the beginning of the Indian independence movement. What often gets lost in that is that before, in between that time, Gandhi um, sat with 78 followers in an ashram and for 15 years, they did the work of self-purification. Um, and so, you know, that piece of the deep, the depth gets kind of lost. And I think that's yeah. what service space is trying to cultivate, but in a way that's, that's bite-sized. So it has three organizing principles um, and it's a, you know, we have three organizing principles. One is um, focus on small acts. Um, yeah. So not, you know, this is the idea of lighting up a thousand one watt bulbs as opposed to asking people to be a thousand watts right at once. So, you know, focus on small acts of kindness, generosity, virtue, etc., yeah. and amplify those stories. The second is um, to serve with what you have. So no fundraising. This is an entire, you know, there is absolutely no fundraising. Um, they, you know, I, if you look, I've, you know, we have so many people that are, it's now, you know, millions, a million of volunteers around the world, totally organic. And people will periodically say, hey, how do I contribute? And there's like, there's absolutely no place on the website. It's so hard to find. Um, it's just, but and it's just kind of on this idea of, we're not really looking for money. We're looking for your volunteer energy. And the third principle is just mm. to be volunteer run. So it's, it's to give with your spirit, your heart, your energy, your intrinsic motivation, not with money. Um, and, you know, like I said, it sounds quaint. It sounds sweet. It sounds like the stuff of a lemonade stand, but it's igniting, uh, you know, millions of people around the globe and hundreds of major cities. Um, and it's, I think it's actually the most hopeful thing I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. 
even including Obama 08. (laughs) Carrie and I know because we've been beneficiaries and and are very grateful to have been participants in some of the activities that fall under service space. And I'm sure that some of our podcast listeners will know about those. You you guys do the daily good, I understand Mm -hmm. it, and you do the awaken calls that both Carrie and I have been on. So, Preeta, how do our listeners get more information about service space? And then I want to dig back in more with you on on its nature. Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, of course, we have a website, but um, as as I like to joke with the founders of service space, um, we've spread despite our website. Um, you know, it's like... <laughs> that's a recommendation in itself. Yeah, it's become viral despite <laughs> despite anything out there. No, but it's just it's it's an energetic field. Like I said, it's building, it's really building a social field, a chi field, so to speak of change. Um, and people are just drawn, um, at a deep level, but yeah, there is a website called servicebase.org. Um, you can also go to awaken.org, which is a W A K I N. It's wonderful stuff. And I agree. You're, you're, I love your website because it, it reminds me of an old book. You know, it's like, it's like <laughs> this, this came off the antique shelf and I'm delighted by it. You know, it's I don't trust slick stuff and it's just uh, it's just us folks. I, and I love that that feature of it. So millions of volunteers around the globe and doing what kinds of things, Preeta? So it's really just um, it's it's just trying to really light them up. So it's whatever, it's not, it's funny because it's not really, we're not trying to get them to do anything other than do what is most intrinsically motivating to them. So do the work of purification, do the work of healing themselves, do the work of transforming themselves and trust that however that manifests for them in their community uh, will be from a deeper and more, you know, loving place. And so we, you know, you know, we hold space for people, we hold silence, we encourage people to just do that inner work, and then they do work in their communities. So and then also all of the projects, whether we're talking about daily good or the awaken calls or the karma kitchens, these have all just been organic emergences of people doing the inner work. So they change themselves, and then they begin to change the communities around them. And then we, you know, and then we create the connections, the network connections to amplify what people do and connect them to each other. So um, let, let's uh, let's dig in on one just one thing you mentioned, which rang some bells for me. Because way back in the olden days, in the 1960s in Berkeley, I met the founder of Service Space and your dear friend, Nipun Mehta. Um, he was a young man then, and so was I. So we had this wonderful <laughs> conversation and attended some meetings and conferences together. And I believe at that time, Karma Kitchens, which you just mentioned, was a reality in Berkeley and in the in the Bay Area. And as I recall, those were places where you could go in and you could eat a meal without charge. And if you were able to pay something for it, uh, pay it forward. So leave some money so that the next person could eat a meal who might be in deeper need than you are. Leave what you are able to leave and if you're able to leave more leave more is that did i describe that accurately and is that a an example of this cultivation of virtue that you're talking about yeah that's an example another example is just um 
you know, just encouraging people to smile every day. I mean, it's yeah. just whatever. You know? <laughs> that was the first thing he did. He handed me one of his smile stickers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's just, it sounds so sweet. It's, you know, it's so funny because it's like, you know, I helped draft. I worked on the constitutions of Iraq and Afghanistan. I did all of these things. And then people ask me, what are you doing now? And it's just like, and I, it's so hard to put it in words. <laughs> but, I, but I just, you know, first of all, you know, I'm a folk singer, so I'm going yay raw. <laughs> it sounds sweet. Um, but but honestly, um, the grassroots and the, uh, the, the way it's spreading, the way that it's happening, it, it takes a certain kind of faith and belief in what's in that inner well. When you discovered that inner well and what was there and you wanted to explore it further, um, you know, that was a, a huge shift for you. And it's a, a huge shift for a lot of people. It's like, oh, it's there. It's, it's always been there. And that's what these movements, these lasting movements that you're talking about with Gandhi, with, you know, um, that's what, that's, that's the well that yeah. they came up out of. And that's the well that you're talking about. And in terms of transmission too, I, I just, I was really taken by something you said the uh, other day about coronavirus and, yeah. and how instead of the coronavirus, this is a, a, a an idea of putting this idea out into, could you, say something about that because yeah, I sure. found it very very lovely yeah and just to be clear about the well I mean I'm kind of joking about it and I'm talking about the things that we so-called do um, as in service space but it's really not about the doing it's about it's about the being yeah and how do you tap into that inner stillness that deep well um, and so when I talk about you know, staying small, being volunteer driven, all of these things. What what I think it's really about, it's not about the projects that come out of it. What it's really about is it's about emptying ourselves of a certain kind of jet fuel. And that's mm. what I feel like I've been doing the last eight and 10 years. I feel like, you know, when we have certain forms of power, whether that comes from political power or money or intellectual power or any any form of power, and it's a little bit what I talked about at the beginning of this conversation. It becomes a crutch to not cultivate what is tr true power. Um, and it's it's like, you know, I, I mean, when you think about, we just honored the 75th anniversary recently of the atomic bomb being dropped. Um, you know, when you think of the 20th century, it was about, you know, the beginning of the 20th century was about external force and arms and World War One and World War Two, And then you end up with this, the unbelievable force that comes from going micro and nano and, you know, splitting mm. the atom, like the force. And I'm thinking about that in terms of social change, like rather than forcing, focusing on our external institutions of power, whether they be corporate or political, what happens when we unlock that micro power of love? Like what is the atomic bomb of love? And I think that's what service space is really about. It's about emptying ourselves of this other power yeah. to really cultivate that inner power of stillness. Um, and so the coronavirus, which you, you asked about, is kind of a little bit, I think, a manifestation of its organizing principles. So we've all learned in this pandemic, um, it, you know, of the coronavirus, 
that there's three factors that determine its spread. And this is like, this is the interdependence that we're all just so painfully aware of now in this era of pandemic. You know, our external connections that we have to each other, mm -hmm. which is why we're now social distancing. There's our internal immunity determines its spread. Um, and then the third is what they keep calling the contagion factor or base, the basic reproductive ratio, which is called r naught um, in the health terminology. And that's so like measles have a really high r naught factor. They spread very quickly. Um, and coronavirus is has a high r naught factor. And so, but you can control its spread through all three of these things, the external connections, the internal immunity, and then this r naught factor. Um, service base came up right after the coronavirus with something called the Corona virus and Corona is Sanskrit for compassion. Um, and I think it kind of reflects what service space is about in some ways, which is it's about, you know, so it's boosting our external connections, the, um, you know, the, tr the traditional networks, the technology, the basic technology and network science connections to boost our external connectedness to one another. So people doing acts of kindness service, like connecting them with one another through the daily good, through Awaken, so that we're spreading those stories. The second is the internal immunity, the, you know, the internal piece. Like how do we provide the, the safe spaces of deep listening to ourselves and others to break down the internal resistance we have to the voice of the heart? So it's kind of building this internal reserve or breaking down the internal resistance to the heart voice. And then the third is inserting stories of compassion that have an incredibly high reproductive ratio because they're pure doses of compassion. Mm. So, you know, it's kind of, again, it's the quality of what you're inserting into the network. So, you know, I think Reed Hoffman way back when, who was the founder of LinkedIn, talked about how, how Facebook is a social network uh, based on vanity. He talked about LinkedIn as one based on greed or avarice. Um, so, so I think of service space as trying to create a network based on just this depth, like encouraging people to go deep within, and they're doing it by inserting just doses of pure, of, of pure virtue um, coming from this very intrinsically motivated space, and then creating a network to spread that in small ways. That's beautiful. You know, yeah. Rita, as I just always uh, gain and grow when I hear you talk, truly so. Um, and uh, you're now reminding me or linking me back to one of my heroes, Thomas Merton, who wrote about the inner ground of love. And I'm recalling, I think, one, well, he thought it was perhaps the most powerful moment in his life when he was on his final trip to the Far East. He found himself meditating in a garden of reclining Buddhas. I think it was in Ceylon. I'm not, I'm not sure at the time, Ceylon. And uh, he, he comes out of that experience writing in his journal that I have just found what I've been seeking all my life. And this we're talking about a man who was a spiritual virtuoso who'd spent half of his life, 27 years, in a Trappist monastery observing rigorous practice. And he said, I can, what well, I can sum up what I learned, what I understood, in that, in that garden of reclining Buddhas. This way, everything is emptiness, and everything is compassion. Everything is emptiness, and everything is compassion. I don't know 
obviously exactly what it was you saw in the middle of that retreat. But at, you know, on those rare moments when I've been graced with a similar vision, as I once was in the high desert of New Mexico, when I saw that the cosmos was utterly indifferent to me, and yet at the same time utterly compassionate toward me, that became the the underpinning. The, not, that's not the right word. Words fail. That became the kind of spiritual aquifer on which I keep drawing and keep trying to return to in my own one-watt life of service. So I'm wondering if that resonates with your understanding. Yeah, very much. And it actually reminds me of kind of where we started this conversation a little bit. I think about, you know, when you think about change, there's a vertical axis and there's a horizontal axis. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it was, I think this is right, I may have this quote wrong, but Lenin was once asked, how are you going to convince, you know, the masses of, of your program? And he said, I don't need to convince a vast majority of people. I just need 10 good people who understand what I'm talking about. And I think that real social change, as we've seen, like the, the kind of more enduring social change, doesn't really happen on the level of the horizontal. It happens on the level of the vertical. It's tapping into that aquifer. Yes. So it's first not worrying about getting enough other people on board by just simplifying the message or dumbing down the message. Um, and society doesn't move because the majority gets there first. Um, by definition, the majority mm. is entrenched in the status yeah. quo. That's why it's the majority and that's why it's the status quo. Mm -hmm. Social change happens when people say what needs to be said and politics and politics, on the other hand, is, you know, is is about trying to get the majority. Yeah, yeah. I think that's so hopeful. I've seen research, Brita, I wonder if you have too, which, say that, which says that um, effective movements that have changed the lay and the law of the land begin with and are rooted in two and a half to five percent of the population. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, and I think it says a lot right now um, for each person, you know, the importance of the, the work that they're doing, it, you know, mm -hmm. that individually, the inner work they're doing and outer work they're doing and that creating that structure. Um, you said something the other day about an extraction model, that the founders um, kind of worked with an extraction model and that you're talking about something different than an extraction model, but something that's generative. And could, could you say something about that? Yeah, and I guess I don't want to pick on the founders, but I think it's more that era. I think we're, we're at a historical inflection mm -hmm. point. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, our found, you know, our whole enlightenment view um, of, you know, whether economy or politics or governance was based on kind of Newtonian physics, which was about adding, you know, putting force into things. You move things by force. Um, and it was based on a certain relationship of humans to nature. Mm -hmm. um, the, all the founding fathers were farmers. And, you know, I think that's really, to me, that's really interesting. And I often remind my friends in the blue states um, of the importance, you know, they, they might bemoan the electoral college and the way in which it gives, 
you know, extra power to states like Wyoming and Nebraska. But there's something about the agrarian root of this country and the connectedness to land that is very important. And it's not mm -hmm. something to be, you know, talked over. But in any event, but you know, they were farmers, but they came from a certain model of farming, which was very much, you know, a traditional uh, monoculture view of agriculture, where you kind of extract from the land. And to me, what's interesting is how do we create, you know, more of a, a regenerative model of agriculture, not only of our land, but of our social fields? Mm -hmm. How do we how do we create more regenerative structures, a social permaculture, so to speak? And what would a what would a, you know, what would a founding or a, what would our social institutions look like with that more? You know, so it's not ladder based, not leader based, rather, of what, you know, the thousand kilowatt energy, but it's more regenerative and ladder based where there's lots of people lit up. And thinking about right now, we're at such um, a time of disrupt, uh, disruption and unraveling. And we have and this is a new moment um, where some of these ideas, you know, I don't know if there, there's a moment in time right now that these ideas are always important, but they're actually, you know, really, um, you know, there's there's something rumbling. You know, many, like you said earlier in our conversation, there's a lot of people talking about the power of love, um, and in different ways. But that um, that it's it's not saccharine. It's not uh, it's not Pollyanna. Love is pretty fierce stuff, you know, really, and enduring, and generative, and so, you know, I think in this time when we really are at a, a new founding moment, um, these ideas are so important and that individuals and the importance of each individual um, in this founding moment. Yeah, I, I you know, so often we want our movements and our change to be viral. Um, and there's there's a, a sense that, oh, wow, this should, you know, and I get this a lot, like for the things I'm working on, like how come it's not more obvious? How come it's not more above ground? It's all mm -hmm. this below ground work. And I, I, the, the image that always comes to my mind is the image of wisteria, which is, you know, the spectacular, beautiful plant flower, and it, but it's fast and aggressive and it works its way into every nook and cranny of the land. Um, and it often ends up, you know, killing other things that are there in, in the ecosystem. And so when I think of love, I think of it as something that for it to really endure and take root, it needs to move at the pace of guidance. Mm. Um, it's something that we just, it's, it's so, you know, how do you, when you light up people, you don't do it from the outside. You don't just give them like some, some words that are inspiring. It's really giving space. It's the opposite of wisteria. It's holding space. It's not being fast and aggressive. It's letting nature do its work. And that's, you know, that's a that's a tall order for what yeah. change requires. It's that 15 years I was talking about with Gandhi at, at a minimum. But it's it's really building that deep well, that that the architecture that supports the thousand, you know, little light bulbs to go deep yeah, um, yeah and that's that's hard work and it's not going to happen quickly but i i guess i see everything else right now is a little bit of deck chairs on the titanic mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I I hate to be the one who starts to bring this to an end, but we probably should. Uh, who wants to bring to an end uh, nearly an hour of delights and insights yes. and edifications and motivations? Uh, certainly not I. You, so much has been sparked in me. Um, one thing being, I flashed just a moment ago when you were speaking, Preeta, on I've had enough of viral... I've often had also had enough of virile uh, that you know this is a very feminist thing you're talking about in this in a sense yeah. that all of us have access to grounded of the earth about growth about regeneration and we really need I think to get on board with a program like that and then we always ask at the end a pretty simple question that relates to the nature of this um, enterprise. Um, and that is, what is your growing edge? I suspect we've been hearing about that for quite a while now, but um, I wonder if there's more you'd like to say. Yeah, well, there's, <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's nothing but a growing edge right now. I mean, I think, you know, I'm still finding my voice with respect to all of, you know, this new way of being, this new way of trying to, um, you know, light up other people. I mean, I grew up in it, you know, and, and, you know, with the very old tools, the traditional tools of, of having a podium of inspiring people of like teaching of like being a leader. And I think for me, it's been a long journey of the, over the last eight, 10 years of unlearning of, um, of emptying is what I call it. You know, there's this famous, uh, I think Zen thing was life is but a series of dishes. I vow to do them all. And I've been kind of at some level just doing dishes, just emptying myself. <laughs> um, but, you know, my growing edge is, you know, may, I, I think I'm starting to see maybe that's really all there is. I, I think at some level I thought I was emptying and that there would be some grand moment of clarity and it would all come together and I would be able to, like, go back to being big and leading something big. And I think there's been this, like, increasing recognition, like, no, this is it. And this is the real work. Um, and a certain like kind of denouement almost of that, like this is, oh, life is just a series of dishes. So <laughs> you just have to just do it joyfully. And as you do it joyfully, just trust that what's meant to grow from that place will grow. Yeah. I don't know if that's being too. It's perfect. I mean, I, I know. you know, just, just, you know, remember that before dishes, I chopped wood and carried water. And after the dishes, yeah. I chopped wood and carried water, right? Yeah. <laughs> With a little enlightenment in between. And after, and after, this will be right before the election when this, this comes out. You know, what am I doing right now in this aquifer, with this aquifer that I'll be doing now and I'll be doing in November after right. Right. You know what? What am I grounding myself in that I'll I'll be carrying forward no matter what happens? I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah everyone's. I mean, obviously, this is a very consequential election, and everybody um, recognizes that. But and and while it's critical to play our role and do everything we can for what we believe in in that election, and what are we going to do the next day? What are we going to yeah, do right. November fourth, regardless of who wins? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons I love getting emails from you, Preeta, uh, is that you have a tagline at the bottom. Lighthouses don't go running around looking for boats to save. They just stand there shining. Uh, 
attributed to Anne Lamott. And I think we've just had an example of that. Um, I'm looking at a Zoom screen that has four people on it. So you, Preeta, and our wonderful producer, Allison Quantz, and Carrie Newcomer, and myself. So we got a four-watt bulb here, and for me at least, we have produced a lot of light that's helped illumine some of my darker thoughts in the, in the last hour. Thank you so much. It's a privilege and a joy, and so grateful for your work, your friendship, your being. Thank you. Just, again, my gratitude. It's been a wonderful conversation, and I know that many of our listeners will be heading to servicespace.org to find out more about what you're doing and about you and Awaken Calls and The Daily Good and all these other uh, wonderful manifestations that, that keep happening. Thank you. Thank you for spending time with us today and, and such a wonderful conversation. Thank you both. Thank you for being such amazing teachers for me. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll check out our next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation too. And remember that with each podcast, including this one, we include a conversation guide, which you can download from our site and talk about all of this with your friends. And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into the conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Allison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, and production, and because she lives a life that matters, and she shines in the world with her light.